Welcome back to OTTB On Tap. I'm Neve, And I'm Emily. And today's episode, we're going to be talking about what it was like to buy a horse, specifically an off-the-track thoroughbred, in the 1990s. And while I personally didn't have the ability to buy a horse in the 1990s, Emily is going to take us through exactly what it was like to find and source a horse back in the mid-90s. Take it away, Emily. Thanks, Neve. One of the interesting things about shopping for horses back in the Stone Ages was that we did not really have the internet, at least not when I started looking. I think it was 1996, and I was in high school and finally had saved up enough money and gotten my parents on board to contribute a little bit too and was going to finally start horse shopping. The way that you would do this is basically pick up your local newspaper and look in the very back and there'd be these short little ads for horses or it might be like a livestock section like depending so like on... where you would find like puppies and kittens and stuff yeah. in the back of like a regular newspaper. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, so you'd have like, you know, eight to ten words and maybe there'd be a price and and, and no there'd be pictures. A, no pictures. <laughs> and then there'd be a phone number. So I always had to write a script before I would make the phone call. So I'd have to like write out what was on the ad and write out what my questions were. So you talk to the person and then you'd make an appointment to go to their farm or wherever they kept their horse and they would give you directions over the phone because there was no map quest or I mean that's even outdated um you right. get children gather around a newspaper get, is right yeah what's the paper um and we would get my poor mom had to drive me because I did not have a driver's license yet, and we would get horribly lost pretty much every time. And you no cell phones, no, like... No, you'd have to stop at a pay phone if you got lost, and then call for more directions, which were like, you pass three trees, and then <laughs> there's a big hill, and then you make a left at the bottom of the hill, and then maybe you arrive there. The other thing is, you would record, if this was a more expensive horse, or if you didn't live nearby... You would actually record VHS tapes with like the big old camcorder and then mail them out to people. That somebody had to like painstakingly edit with like some cool neon graphics and information about the horse. I never had neon graphics, although infamously, and this is kind of embarrassing, one time I edited one for a friend of mine, a a sales video. Because I think you needed two VCRs to do this. I don't even really, or maybe it was a camcorder and a VCR. So she asked me to do this, and I had the volume on mute. (laughs) (laughs) And I didn't realize that my mom was, like, yelling at me in the background to do something with the dog, or I don't know. Um, And so my poor friend mailed these out and then found out, like, later when she actually listened to it with the volume that (laughs) there was all this chaos going on in the background. So, yeah, a little bit embarrassing. Um, Word of mouth was also, like, literally word of mouth, not word by Facebook. But knowing people that knew people that had a horse for sale is one way you might find them. Flyers and tax shops or feed stores was another way. But yeah, I mean, you actually had to go out and drive out, see these horses in person. Never knew what was going to be there when you got there, if you got there. We actually would sometimes even take horses on trial. Like 
you would just load it up and take it for a week or two. <laughs> there was no like insurance, no nothing, like just how it was. I feel like I can remember from that time period getting like Practical Horseman magazine and there being ads in those magazines, but those were for horses that were like way out of anybody's reach. I mean, these were, you know, Devon show ponies and things like that, but that's my only like real recollection of like... I feel like they might have been fancy enough to have pictures. Right. With like but... color pictures and Practical Horsemen. I also feel like there would be like like horse resellers or, or horse traders or dealers that would like have a constant ad yeah. in magazines like that. And, you like, know, they oh, always... Like, buy, sell, like, you know, yeah. horse... Yeah. Yeah. So a um, little bit different than now. Um, I don't know if it's easier now or harder. <laughs> right. In some ways, like the simplification of that process, like meant that you were probably a very dedicated buyer and probably as a seller, you were probably maybe a little more open, but I feel like also the volume of horses being sold and the volume of off the track thoroughbreds being sold now is like way up and beyond like what it was back in the nineties. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. We did also still vet them, but that was probably a little bit different as well. We can talk about that more as we get into it, too. Well, we thought we'd just take this opportunity to get to know Emily's former advanced horse via the horse shopping process in the 1990s. So we're just going to do a little Q&A here. Emily, how do you feel? Feeling good. (laughs) So you were coming off of... A pony, I think, at the time, right? When you were starting to look for your first thoroughbred or what sort of background or where did you kind of... I don't think I ever rode a pony. Wait, I thought Prince was a pony. Oh, well, yeah, but that's when I was 10. (laughs) I don't think he was a pony either. I think he was horse-sized. For those of you that don't know Emily in real life, she's quite tall. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, so I was not coming off a pony. No, I was 16 years old and I'd already been able to become fairly accomplished riding borrowed or leased horses throughout my career as a young rider when I was 14 I actually on a horse I was leasing was able to win the area two young rider preliminary championships and I was reserve in the open division too which is really incredible when you think about it now I also went to pony club nationals a couple times for eventing at training level and for show jumping and I think I was a Pony Club B at this point. I became an HA a couple of years later. So I had quite a lot of experience. I always had to kind of ride what was around or given to me or I was able to lease or things like that. But I did a lot of working off riding time, basically. Right. And at that time, were you working with like one trainer or were you like a working student or kind of a barn rat kind of situation or... Like, who kind of helped you through the process of finding a horse? I mean, I definitely went through the barn rat phase. (laughs) (laughs) I was working with some trainers through Pony Club for dressage and show jumping, but they weren't actively involved with, like, the horse purchasing process. I was working for a really wonderful woman at the time who owned a barn, and she really helped me a lot with the search. So she wasn't specifically a trainer but she could get on and ride anything and was very experienced herself i think she evented through like the intermediate level and was very experienced with off the track thoroughbreds as well so she really helped me quite a bit and when you were starting to look for horses around where you were living where were you living at the time i was in new jersey oh okay 
And how far were you willing to drive to go look for a horse? Well, it depended on my mom's schedule, to be honest, unless I could get Anne, the woman I was just talking about, to, to drive me somewhere. And I don't know, probably within an hour radius, something like that. Not very far. You were like kind of near Gladstone? Not at that time. I was more central Jersey. Okay. And what was your search criteria? Like, what were you, were you personally looking for? Like, did were there things that you were like, you know, I don't want a horse that's under 15 hands, or I don't want this or that? No, my, my search criteria was basically, I was looking for the horse that was going to take me to the very upper levels of eventing. And I feel like I, I knew I was going to have one shot to get this horse. And I tried horses that were all different sizes, all different shapes, all different colors. They tended to mostly be thoroughbreds just because that was what I could afford. And they tended to be very, very green. But I did not have like a set criteria in terms of like what the horse actually looked like. Now, in terms of confirmation, I was very specific. What specifically about confirmation were you looking for? Well, one of the great things about Pony Club is that they really teach you what to look for in terms of confirmation, not only for soundness, but for certain traits like movement and jumping. So I had a really strong foundation already, but then I was a voracious reader and I was obsessed with books about eventing. So I had Jimmy Wofford's book. I was just looking at it. It was published in 1995, Training the Three-Day Event Horse and Rider. <clears throat> and he has a really excellent section in here about confirmation and how different confirmation traits um, affect things like movement and jumping. He also talks about the size of the horse. And I really love that. He says here towards the end that um, a good horse will always have some length in him somewhere. I feel like there's this real trend towards like super short backed horses and kind of upright, maybe short and upright in the neck. And in my experience, this has held true for me, whereby the like, horse with a little bit of a longer back has that scope to jump the bigger jumps more easily. And Alex was definitely that kind of horse, right? Yes, he was very long. When you were looking at horses, were you the type of person that could just sit on a horse and just sort of know, or was there more to it than that for you? I think that that's a complicated question. <laughs> <laughs> I think it, I, it's easy to sit on one and say, no, this isn't it. That's fair. But when you're looking for something super specific like I was, it took me a little bit longer because I wanted to make sure... That with my limited funds, I would end up with something that had the ability to take me to the upper levels. And I also, one of my biggest criterias was something that was going to jump the fence, that loved jumping, and that um, was going to jump sort of in spite of what you did rather than because of what you did. Mm, that's a really good point. Um, when you found horses that you liked, um, you said earlier that you were often able to take horses on trial did you take any horses on trial if i recall correctly i think i took one on trial um and unfortunately i got embedded and he had some issues that my vet didn't think he would hold up to upper level eventing um and then 
I think we had an ice storm or something like that, and he got stuck at our barn for a little while. So that was a little bit unfortunate for all parties involved, particularly the seller, because she knew I wasn't buying the horse, and then we also could not get a trailer down the driveway. I feel like in this day and age, like, people's heads would pop off of their body if that happened. A 100%, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, he ended up being with us for a little bit longer than intended, that's for sure. Can you talk a little bit more in depth about, like, what it was like when you would show up to someone's farm that you had driven a couple of hours to go see a horse, like... You know, how did it work? Did you did you watch the person ride the horse? Did you tend to just get on? I'm assuming you probably didn't bring your own saddle in there and expect anything <laughs> like that. But to be honest, it was not that different than it goes today in terms of when you buy a horse. No, I did not bring a saddle with me. <laughs> Generally speaking, if the horse was broke, I did look at some that were unbroke. Generally speaking, the seller or the seller's rider or trainer would get on it and ride it. And then if you liked it, you would get on it and ride it. I do have a memory of looking at one where I think the person couldn't be there. So I literally went to their barn and pulled this horse out of the field and rode it. (laughs) That must have been weird. I don't think it went very well. (laughs) So, you know, there were kind of instances like that. Uh, I think I looked at one that was like a two-year-old... And the woman decided she was going to teach me how to lunge a two-year-old that had never been lunged. So that was another interesting experience. Um, You're just a captive audience at that stage. Yeah, I'm like, can I get out of here? I don't (laughs) want your (laughs) 14-hand two-year-old that's feral. And then there was one that my mom and I got incredibly lost going to see this horse. And that had been a word-of-mouth person that I knew through a friend. We finally got there after like being really, really, really delayed and having to like find a payphone and call these people. And the horse, I think he was a four-year-old and he'd been recently broke. He was, you know, like green broke. And the guy got on him and the horse just immediately bucked him off. So I felt really bad about that because it basically taken up their entire day. And then- (laughs) You didn't get on that one. I did not get on that one, no. (laughs) You talked a little bit about the other horse that you brought on trial, but were there any other horses that you really wanted before you met Alex? Yeah, I vetted two. The one that we were just talking about, who was a really cute chestnut thoroughbred, who had a great canter and a super jump. And then I vetted one before that, too. So in total, I vetted three horses. But the first two, my vet was just like, definitely no. (laughs) Right, for what you wanted to do. Yeah. And how did you find out that Alex was for sale in the first place? Another word of mouth. I don't remember if it was my vet at the time or the woman I worked for, but knew this woman in Pennsylvania that probably was one of the first resellers of off-track thoroughbreds. So she had a whole barn full of off-track thoroughbreds and she would restart them. And I think she probably had like five or six I was interested in when I first went there. And I was able to see her ride them and... If I liked them, then I could get on them and ride them as well. And what was it about Alex that you kind of liked initially when you saw him go with her? Oh, his jump. (laughs) That was it. (laughs) He was very, 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 very difficult. Um, He went around with his head straight up in the air. Um, He did not... He wanted to trot straight up and down like a sewing machine. Um... His canner basically was like you holding on for dear life. 
<laughs> he was very big and extremely strong. But you put a jump in front of him and it was like you just had to hold on and he was going to jump it. Like he instinctively knew what to do. And I've never sat on another horse like that before or since. I, a little anecdote here, but I saw a VHS tape that Emily's mom made of when, one of the times that she tried Alex, because I believe you tried him several times. Yes. And it was a freezing cold day. I think I got frostbite while I was riding. (laughs) And the video is really long. It's over an hour and a half long, I believe. And she is literally just trying to get like a quiet trot (laughs) out of this horse. And I just kind of stared at the video and all like what was it about him that like you knew and you know and I didn't I don't think I saw any videos of him jumping at that stage but she was like the jump and everything else I was just like I can work on this I can fix it well and particularly in those days if you had a horse that was going to jump the big cross-country tracks and had the endurance for your endurance day which was the old school long format with roads and tracks and steeplechase before you even went out on cross-country you could get away with a subpar dressage sometimes and move way up the ranks. I mean, you still can today, certainly at the bigger, you know, Burley or something like that. Sometimes people make huge jumps after cross country. But in those days, it wasn't unheard of to have an extremely good cross country horse that wasn't necessarily the best on the flat. You had a a lot of other phases to get through before you finished your events back in those days. Yeah, it was a very, very long, long process. So... Once you decided he was the one, did you vet him? And were there anything that, any findings or anything that popped up or anything that the vet was concerned about at the time? I did vet him. And I remember he was so flexible that it was almost impossible to like do flexion tests (laughs) on him because his joints were just so mobile. Like he flexed incredibly well. I don't believe... It's a long time ago. I don't believe we did any x-rays just because he was sound under saddle. He was sound loose and he flexed so well. And also I had a very limited budget. And also I think x-rays were more of like a case by case basis back then. They weren't treated the same way they are today. The one major finding that we had, which at the time also people weren't nearly as concerned about, was he had a wind issue. He roared. He was a very, very big horse. He was 17 hands with a very long neck. And in my experience, and I've been told by vets that that is oftentimes the type of horse that does roar. And basically, we did scope him. And the advice was to run him up through advanced and then do a tieback surgery. And that's basically just what you did, right? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So how was the retraining process with him once you got him home? And you mentioned that you were with a woman named Anne at the time, and you said she had OTTB experience. So how how did that factor into how you retrained him and started working with him? I don't remember if she ever rode him. She might have tried to ride him once and was just like, <laughs> you need like serious help with this thing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and so very quickly, I started working with Michael Godfrey. He would come down to her farm and she would take a couple lessons or... He would do a training ride or two on her horses, and then I would get a lesson, which I think we could afford one lesson every two weeks was basically how I started out working with Michael. But he just had a way of understanding horses like this. He was a very, very good rider on the flat and over fences as well, and he understood 
the hot, strong horse and how their bodies worked and how to get the most out of them and also some different like training methodologies to help with horses like this. What was the most difficult part of the retraining process in the beginning? I mean, he was just so strong. I remember like all of a sudden I had like these back and arm muscles that I didn't have before. <laughs> like just to trot him was like he just wanted to go faster and faster and faster all the time. <laughs> but the funny thing was you could take him on a hack down the road on the buckle. And as long as you didn't touch the reins, you were fine. I feel like this is a fairly common trait of upper level horses. Yeah, maybe. I, I don't know. But I mean, I've never ridden a horse that he it's weird. He didn't have what you would consider like a dull or a dead mouth because he could feel it. He just didn't care. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I actually rode him in a nave bit for most of our training at home. Because I found it didn't really make a difference to ride him in a stronger bit at home. And then that way I could have a little extra oomph when we went to a competition with a little bit of a sharper bit. And when you say sharper bit, you meant? Well, in dressage, we always rode in snaffles as it was. I don't think we could use a Dr. Bristol even in those days. So I feel like I rode in like kind of a thinner, loose ring. Yeah. Maybe a French link. If you got fancy, like the KK bits, I think were just coming out with like the little lozenge in the middle. But I did ride him in a double bridle at Kentucky because for dressage, because they had decided to introduce the flying change at the end of an extended canter across the <laughs> diagonal. And that there was the first year that event horses had to do a flying change. So we had never schooled them. We always schooled them to counter canter. And not to change. So it was very exciting. Um, and I was worried I wasn't going to stay in the ring. So That he, makes a lot of sense. He, he wore a double there. Especially if he could have seen any of the cross-country jumps, I feel like you might have been. Yeah. I mean, he knew what he was doing. <laughs> and what were your goals with him once you purchased him and you started competing? And like once you got him off the farm and started getting him to some events, like what... What was in your mind as far as like your end goal? I mean, I had planned out his entire competition like seasons for the next several years until we were going to be going advanced. So we were going to do like X amount of novices, X amount of training. I think we were going to do four novices, four trainings, four prelims, four intermediates, and then move up to advanced. So I had like planned out in my 16 year old mind, like, <laughs> specifically this is the schedule and this is what we're going to do and the weird thing is it pretty much worked and i've can attest to the fact that i've actually seen some of these journals that emily kept of the training process and her goal setting process and it's pretty incredible because really back then even in area two you there weren't dozens and dozens of events that you could go to for qualifications right there weren't. So it was probably almost a little easier to plan it out because you kind of did what you had. And then I should also add that a major difference back then was to do a big three-day event like Essex or Young Riders or Radnor <clears throat> or Bromont. You at most ever did one in the spring and one in the fall. So that is a major difference to today. A, they were there were no more available. And B, it was too taxing on the horses to get them fit and do that event more than once or twice a year. Before you started competing him, did you ever take him cross-country schooling? I don't know. <laughs> I know you said you jumped him over, like, some logs and things that you had around your farm, but... 
I, I, I don't. So we didn't really cross country school the way we do now back then. Like certain farms would be open, you know, I feel like you could call them for an appointment, but it couldn't be within a certain time of their event. And so the jumps might not be, you know, trimmed or ready or, you know, jumpable. And then I know like we would go up to the USCT in Gladstone and they had like one or two schoolings per year that you could go and pay to school and you need a ground person. But our resources for schooling cross country were fairly limited at the time. So I probably hopped him over some logs, took him through a stream crossing. <laughs> and the other the other major difference too was we only we started off at novice. We didn't have beginner novice. We didn't have really have starter. We had what were called chicken events. <laughs> that sounds like my kind of Yeah. <laughs> I mean that was there was like chicken little and chicken big. <laughs> which sounds ridiculous now, but it, it didn't matter for him what size the jumps were, but they were much less complicated at the lower levels then than they are now. So novice was basically coops, logs, fences with wide faces, nothing narrow, a water crossing, maybe a bank. Very, very much simpler, although they could be up to two foot 11. So, you know. <laughs> and once you started getting him out there at novice, what did you think when you started competing him? What did I think? I don't know. What do you mean by what did I think? Just like, were you like, oh, this is it. This is the horse I've been looking for. Like, he's got all the pieces. Or or were you like, oh, God, dressage is going to be a, a lifelong, you know, problem or... I guess or- I'm kind of funny. When I make a decision, I'm usually like, that's my decision. And <laughs> I knew what I had bought. I knew he was going to be tough. Um, but you also knew he was special. But I also knew he was going to jump anything and could jump anything. And that is exactly what he did. I, I'm just going to add here that a couple of times Emily and I have walked different courses in and around area two, like Radnor and Fairhill, and you can still see sort of the, the fossils of the years before what of the long format of old jumps that she's pointed out to me. And the thing that she said to me that really resonates with me now is that there was no practicing any of those elements if you had a triple down bank you never got to go school that anywhere or a, a ditch in a wall with a normandy or a normandy bank or you know just things that now are people are building in their backyards because they're on every course it was just something that you showed up and you just worked really hard to get your horse to be <laughs> yeah a heat-seeking missile so to speak Yes, I jumped a lot of things for the very first time in competitions. I mean, and it's not to say that we didn't get to school things, but it was like once or twice a year. Yeah. You know, so depending what level you were at and depending on where you got to school, you may or may not have jumped. Like I remember there was a <clears throat> event at a farm called Pleasant Hollow, which was just a fantastic place. And on their intermediate course, like, you know, I had been competing there since I was real little. And so you'd see these jumps every time you'd go there and do the little jumps. And you'd build up in your mind, like, what was going to happen when you were going <laughs> to jump these things. And they had this one jump that you had to go straight up a very steep hill in the middle of a field. And there was a small vertical at the top. And I believe you landed and I believe had to bounce down a bank and, like, land on a downhill. <laughs> So it's kind of like a reverse ski slope because you go straight up over a little vertical and then bounce down. And I had never done anything like that. 
And I was worried that we were going to launch in outer space (laughs) at the top of it. But he actually, for all of his wildness, was very, very, very smart and very quick. He was really catty for a horse of his size. Really catty. So oftentimes you might think that he would have just jumped off the top of that thing, but he knew to put his feet down. And I don't know how he knew because we hadn't practiced it. (laughs) Amazing. (laughs) And what were some of the biggest obstacles you had in the first year or so that you had Alex and was there <laughs> anything that you did back then that you would do differently now? Um, so we had a bunch of obstacles. He had the worst feet of any horse I've ever seen now than since. And probably any of my farriers had ever seen. <laughs> he had one with a higher heel and one with a lower heel. He had very, very dished feet very very long toes when we got him but he also had a very brittle very very thin he like did not even have a hoof wall he did not have a sole his soles were actually Ooh. so they didn't curve away from you they curved towards you and you could even like press on them, them with your yeah. fingers we didn't have magic cushion back then it's a lifesaver now yeah so the it, it was a bit of a struggle and it was definitely a learning curve and learning how to find a good farrier and keep that farrier happy while shoeing your really horse with horrible, horrible feet. I think in the fall, he'd had, he just started, um, like I got him in the spring. We did get to some competitions throughout the spring and summer. And then in the fall, I'd, I'd moved him up to training level. <laughs> Because that's what you did. <laughs> and then we ended up just pulling his shoes and throwing, you know, chucking him out for the winter. Um, just let him grow some some puff. Yeah. Which, again, is kind of controversial. Now, we it's certainly not something you would want to do on hard ground or limited time or anything like that. But for him, it was actually very beneficial because he could not grow, like, with the nail holes. He couldn't grow anymore. Yeah. Wall. I don't even know if we did glue on shoes back then. If we did, it was like a really big deal. And there were no like hoof boots or right. anything like that. So that was basically your option. I remember when Karatex came out. <laughs> that was like, oh my goodness, what is, why am I putting formaldehyde on my horse's feet? But that was like a huge invention and that actually helped a lot. So that was a, a huge challenge. Probably the biggest one and it was ongoing. He also did not like to eat. Um, he was very, very thin. And I'm sure he had tons of ulcers, but again, we didn't know about ulcers back then, or it wasn't commonly treated or anything like that, and or was extremely expensive, probably even more expensive than it is now. So, and probably GastroGuard and, you know, Sepulfrate think... and all those things, like, didn't really exist. I, I don't think so. Or they were in their very, like, yeah. early stages of development. Yeah, I think, and if they were, they were definitely, like, you know medically prescribed and and regulated or something like that but yeah it wasn't even something we ever like thought of and was there like a particular event or time in the early years with alex that you were like this is my upper level horse i know you've talked a lot about the whole cross-country experience but was there like a actual like one single moment that you just knew I mean, I knew the first time I ever saw him. <laughs> My first time I ever saw him jump anything. You talked a little bit about training with Michael Godfrey. And what was his opinion of Alex at that point? I know you said Michael was quite a good flat rider and great over fences as well. But what was his opinion? 
it was funny. The first time I think I took a lesson with Michael, I think I had my dressage saddle on because I was like, we definitely need to do flat work. And I think he just really wanted to see the horse jump. <laughs> <laughs> so at the end of the lesson, he made me jump things in my dressage saddle, which I ended up getting used to because we did that quite a bit <laughs> back then. But on a horse like that, it was tough. And so, I don't know, I think we jumped some barrels or something like that, which that again was kind of just what we did. And he stopped me and told me that I had to take really, really good care of him because he was a big time horse. And he just kept repeating it. So that was really special for, yeah. you know, someone that had gone to Burley. I think he was 10th at Burley one year and consistently was placing at the upper levels at that time that he had such a high opinion of him. After seeing him jump, literally one jump. He could... He could see the it factor. Yes. And then the funny part of that is that the woman who sold him to me had called him and told him to come look at the horse. I didn't know that at the time. <laughs> and he just never went. So. You did mention that Michael didn't love riding Alex, though. I Nobody loved riding Alex. <laughs> <laughs> he never got to take him around a cross-country course. That's the only time he was fun. <laughs> this feels like a really good place to leave this episode for today and join us where we follow Emily and Alex, her OTTB, to the upper levels of eventing. Please follow us on social media. We can find us at OTTB underscore on underscore tap on Instagram. On Facebook, we're OTTB Market. And you can email us at OTTB on tap at gmail.com. See you guys next time. Bye.